When you're 20, the prospect of death can seem surreal. But if, at age 20, you're strapped into the cockpit of a P-51 fighter plane, and your mission is to escort bombers over Nazi Germany, and you regularly have to dodge flak while fending off the Luftwaffe, well, the prospect of death becomes very real. It was indeed very real for 20-year-old Lieutenant George Beeling, Jr. George successfully returned 41 times from missions over Germany, but on the 42nd, his engine failed, and he was forced to land in the heart of enemy territory. George had no choice but to take, as he puts it, the hard way home. From Honor Flight Chicago, this is George Beeling's story. George, I suspect you've asked yourself many times, how in the world did I survive so many close calls with death? I haven't, you don't know the half of it. Tell me about <laughs> it. Tell me about it. Well, there was one time when uh, we were flying and uh, the Germans sent flak up at us and uh, there were four bursts of flak right amongst uh, four planes. And of course, fortunately, uh, they, they burst right at our altitude, but they did. There were no direct hits, so we 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 spread like you never believe. You don't saw four planes go four different ways in their life, so we just peeled away. That was one. Uh, then there was another where uh, they came out with a uh, uh, what they called a G suit. It was a suit you put on, and it, uh, when you turned your airplane, it filled up with air, and it kept you, it, it kept, it kept the G's down. And uh, I tried that, and the problem was, it was too tight. And when I got in my airplane to fly, I couldn't, I couldn't push in my left rudder all the way, and uh, we took off, of course, in formation, and I almost ran into the, uh, into, into my leader. Uh, luckily, I, I I used a stick and I, I pulled off the ground and and pulled over to the side. That was a very close call. And uh, after after we returned, uh, uh, my leader came in and said, "I understand you almost killed me this morning." And he, he you know he talked to somebody who apparently was watching from the bridge. So that was another time. And then one time I was coming back and. Uh, uh, I was in. There was a. There was an overcast, and, I, and it was all the way to the ground. And I had a let down. And by the time I came out of the overcast, I was about six feet off the ocean. And that was another time. And then at that same flight, I, uh, I I got to the coast of England, but I couldn't. I was so low that they couldn't pick me up on radar, and I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know which way the airfield was, whether it was to the left or the right. So that was another time. Uh, yeah, that's how many times have I given you there? Oh, and then there was another time where uh, uh, we we were we were strafing we were strafing the Germans, and they the guy down below had a rifle. They shot at us with his rifle, and he hit one of us. Now, fortunately, it wasn't me, but uh, the guy guy had a bailout. Uh, with the guy his uh, his, his uh, fuel line so. A single so shot. Are, a single shot with a rifle hit the fuel line. Yeah, he just he just happened to. You see that P fifty one was was uh, liquid cooled, and uh, of course, if you hit the cooling line, you, you disabled it. Now the the the, the P forty seven was air cooled, so that thing could fly, you know, without anything. But the P fifty one was very vulnerable to that. So, 
Yeah, well, so I, I don't know. And then, of course, when we escorted the, when we escorted the bombers, uh, we had to, you know, go into a uh, into a flak field, what I call a flak field, and I saw those bombers get hit and and, and, and spiral down like toys. But we when we hit the when we hit the flak area, of course, we turned and went around and, and met them after they came out of the flak area. So. You know, that, that, that was, that was it. Uh, so, mm. Let me take you back to when you arrived in England. This is in August of 44. And what's your, That's correct. What's your job going to be back in August of 44? Well, we were going to we join, uh, join the 357th fighter group, and uh, we were replacing pilots who had flown their... Uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, they, when they were through flying and they went home, and they, we, if we flew 50 missions, we got rotated. So I only made 42, but, uh, some of them, some of them made it and uh, we were to replace them. And of course, we had to get acclimated and, uh, and uh, to the uh, tactics and the formations and so forth. Well, the 357th Fighter Group, which you're a part of in August of 44, your job is to accompany bombers to escort exactly. them on bombing missions. That's and right. We escorted bombers. Well, our, our, our mission was to, was, to, was to ward off enemy fighters. We were to intercept enemy fighters who were coming after the bombers. That was, that was our job. And your fighter plane is a P-51, and you named it Shy Lassie. There's a Chicago connection there, isn't there? There is. I was from Chicago. Did you get much admiration from your fellow flyers about, hey, there's George and the fly and the Chai Lassie, huh? You know, they all they, they all named their plays Hurry Home Hand, you know, stuff like that. But yeah. I chose Chai Lassie because I was from Chicago, and I thought it was a play on words. Uh, a shy girl, you know, like my girl, my, my, my fiance, Chai Lassie, so... Oh, that's good. I like so between August and mid-January in '45, you flew 41 missions over Germany, and you're protecting 42. 40. Uh, on the 42nd mission is when you had issues. That's when you were uh, got in trouble. That's when I got. Yeah, that's when my engine failed me. Yes. But all the time you're protecting the B-17s, and I'm wondering if you could paint a picture of what that's like. When you go up in your fighter plane and you've got this sky filled with B-17s on their way to, to, to Germany, what, what, what did that look like? It's amazing. It was amazing. From as far as, as far as you can see ahead and as far as you can see behind, B-17s, it was just amazing. It must, must have been a thousand. We had a zigzag overhead because, of course, we flew faster than the B-17, so we couldn't fly directly with them. We had a zigzag above them, so uh, they and they went up to thirty thousand feet. So they flew at thirty thousand feet, and uh, for us to go above thirty thousand feet was was hard because the plane wouldn't go much higher. It got very mushy. The air was very thin, so. Our controls got very mushy. We we had a heck of a time. So the whole time you're up there at thirty thousand plus, you're watching for enemy fighters. Exactly. And exactly. And you're just using eyesight. You're just eyeballing the whole terrain, the horizon, to see that's, what you can see. That's correct. That's correct. On December twenty, 20- they used to call us the bombers. Used to call us a little friend. <laughs> I guess. Us. 
They called us little friends. They loved us. On December 24th, you had your first kill. Tell me about That's that. Correct. What happened that day? Well, it was, uh, uh, we, we met enemy fighters, and of course, I, I followed one and got behind him and let go and down. He, he bailed out. He, he ejected, he ejected, uh, bailed out. And, yeah. Yeah, and he almost hit your aircraft, too, I, I read. Uh, well, he he was, I tell you, as I look back, he was very inexperienced. He just was, he just was flying along and I think he was trying to get home and he ran into me and I was, I, he was no match for me. It was, it was almost like shooting fish in a barrel, you know, so. Well, after that, in late December, same month, you get promoted to lieutenant, but you're notified of your promotion in some untraditional surroundings. <laughs> Tell us about yes. that. What happened? Well, I don't know. I just uh, uh, my I just went into the uh, latrine one night, and uh, my uh, my uh, leader uh, was in the just came standing next to me, and he just said, uh, "I think I'm going to promote you." Well, you have to be, as you've mentioned, one of the one of the few people in the mighty eighth who gets promoted while you're in a latrine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, so it wasn't very important, you know, because uh, uh, it wasn't important whether I was a second lieutenant or first lieutenant. I still got to do the same thing and take the same chances, and you know, that's, uh, that's all we were concerned about. Right. All right, so January 14th, I want to take you to that date, 1945. This is your 42nd mission. And yeah, that's the date. Your destination is Berlin. You're going to escort the bombers, and you're going to hit Berlin. That's correct. What happened? Walk, walk well, us through what happened. What happened. Was, what happened was the bombers got attacked by uh, uh, Messerschmitts, uh, German fighter planes, and, of course, we dove into them, and, and the... And uh, as I went along, I looked behind for my wingman, and this German pilot was on. I could see it was a big, big engine. I knew it wasn't a P-51. It was a, you know, a, a, a Fock Wolf. And, and somehow uh, he got out of my tail, and I couldn't shake him. I, I, uh, I, I did everything. I turned and, and looped, and, but I couldn't get rid of him. So finally I said, well, maybe I can... Maybe I can outrun them, and of course, as I started to go back, uh, my uh, engine started to spit smoke, and uh, finally it just went out. I couldn't get it started, and uh, so uh, it was a question of whether I would bail out or crash land, and uh, by the time I decided to uh, bail out, I was uh, my my plane was too, too low, and uh, I was going too slow, so I had only had one option. That was to crash land, and... I was right over a forest, and uh, so it was a problem. But I happened to see this uh, opening, and I, I, I just cra I landed, you know, wheels up. And uh, even even the, the Germans that captured me said, "Boy, you made a nice landing." So I uh, I was okay, but <laughs> and uh, this German plane was still still behind me. So when I got on the ground, I hid behind my uh, 
I, I behind my armored uh, seat, and of course he didn't he didn't strike me. He just passed over, and uh, then I got out of my plane, and I, I don't know what the hell I was going to do, but I, I was, was you know and they they just surrounded me, and they were demanding my. Uh, they want I couldn't understand what they were saying, but. Uh, I, I knew they were looking for a gun, and of course we always were issued a forty-five, but I never took it because I said I'm not going to try to shoot my way out of Germany with a forty-five. So, uh, but it just so happened that uh, uh, there was a uh, a German uh, officer that was home from leave from the Eastern Front, and he spoke English, so. He said, well, for, for, I bet you when you took off this morning, you didn't think you'd be here today. I said, boy, you're so right. He said, well, for you, the war is over. <laughs> well, then he uh, he later marches you toward a ditch, I think you wrote, and you were oh, thinking. Oh, yeah, when they took me from, yeah, I thought, I, I thought well, they're just going to shoot me and lay me in that ditch. No, but I was wrong about them. They weren't. They were. They weren't about to do that at all. They they took me into the farmhouse and called the Luftwaffe, and I, had, I was there a couple hours while the Luftwaffe came and got me. But uh, you were so re- I, you, you were really fortunate because that pilot chose not to strafe you, so he made that decision, and then the English speaking colonel decides that he's not going to shoot you and leave you in a ditch. So once again, you escape a close call. You, you know, you're so right. You're so right. I, I, it's amazing. It, it really is amazing. So you had uh, uh, some locals. I guess they were like uh, the the home guard uh, who came up with rifles, and they you you had to surrender right away. You put your hands up, and I did. You yeah, know, and they, I like and and they could have shot you too, but they chose not to. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Anybody could have shot me, and then the, then the. Uh, uh, the, the, the guard who was a very old man, he was, you know, he he took me. He had, in order to take me to the to the uh, prison camp, he had to take me on a on a, a train through uh, through Berlin, and and you know the, the the commuters were getting on the train, and there I was standing there with this with this old guard, and of course they were looking fire at me too. So I'm surprised they didn't do anything. And, but Berlin was in the just of an absolute shambles. Just nothing but but bombed out building. It was it was amazing. Berlin was just a mess. And you're the enemy in their midst. Their town is destroyed, and you're That's the enemy. Correct. Well, That's right. somebody was looking out for you. Yeah, one of the passengers showed me a a newspaper with a picture of a tank. And that's so, you know, this is our big take. It's just amazing. So this this whole time, uh, when, when you're in prison, you're moved to various locations. Are you interrogated? Uh, I was I was eventually interrogated. I was interrogated in Frankfurt. They had an interrogation center, and they they put us in. Um, quarantine. No, I shouldn't say quarantine. They put us in in, in solitary in cells. solitary cells. Yeah. Solitary, yeah, they put us in solitary, and that was supposed to soften us up to talk, you know. But nobody, the the, the officer that interrogated me was a German pilot himself who had been captured and, and had been repatriated from uh, uh, from Canada, and so he couldn't go back into combat. So he was he wasn't, you know. He, 
he asked me questions. I said, I can't answer that. I can, you know, and he said, well, don't make any difference. We know anyway. And I said, I don't think they had, they knew everything. They had this big book of all the outfits and who was in charge. And, you know, and he, he talked about, uh, Girls, he said, we like them a little plumper than you guys do. You know, <laughs> he said, we uh, we go visit these girls. He said, we eat up all their rations and stuff like that. So, so they knew and you gotta, they had done a lot you gotta of... Remember, you got to remember, Paul, during all this, I was only 20 years old. I was just a kid. Yeah. I mean, when I go... When I look back at it, I mean, you know, it's stupid. I remember mean, as a kid, 20 years old, going through all that. And as a kid, you know no fear, but later on, you discover how close you came to your life coming to an end, and then it all hits you after a while. Yep. And uh, one of the things, you know, the, one of the hardest things, of course, at that time, I don't think they understood that what we call battle fatigue. But when I got back, I mean, it. You know, I stood there and saw people were living their lives, and it, it was so strange to me that you know I, where I came from, it was all, what I went through it was like oh, these people. They don't understand what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's not unique to your generation. That's uh, every time somebody yeah. comes home from that situation and they look at people around them and say, you guys are living your lives. You don't understand what I've been through. That's correct. They have no, they have no idea. I mean, they, they read the paper and they talk, but they have no idea what it, you know, it, it's really something to be in combat. I, I, it's amazing. Any, anybody that's been in combat, I, I'm with them. I mean, there's nothing like it. Did your family know when you were captured? Had they been notified that you were being held prisoner or that you were yes, just I, missing I an still action? Have, I, I still have the telegrams that they received. They received one telegram uh, uh, announcing that I was missing an action, and later on they received another telegram uh, that I had been captured, that I was a prisoner of war. And then they received a third telegram that I had been returned to friendly, friendly lines. So I have all those. I have all those telegrams. What so. did, when you came home? And I want to get to a little bit more of this in a minute or two. But when you, when you were able to get in touch with your family and they they knew you were okay, did they tell you about uh, the degree to which they were worried? They thought you were dead. You're a prisoner of war. They get these telegrams. They probably were going out of their mind. They did. They did actually. Uh, there, there was a there was a an announcer. Of course, we didn't have television in those days, but there was an announcer called Almer Turner, and uh, he he married an Oriental woman, but he took up the cause of, of POWs. And somehow my father made friends with him, and the, you know they talked about uh, prisoners of war. And after I got back, uh, uh, we had uh, he took us he took us to Chinatown uh, and, and treated us to dinner. But uh, so that my father was very uh, active with the you know prisoners of war and stuff like that. So 
and 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 they 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 sweated they sweated uh, all right you so you're in you're in a stalag and you're in Potsdam uh, outside Berlin stalag stalag yeah that's right and you're how are you treated there well i i i wasn't treated i mean we uh it was cold and of course uh, our beds were full of ice, and uh, all we got to eat was some in the morning some little bag of soup, and then uh, some black bread with a couple potatoes, and so it. it, it but I, there was no physical mishandling. No, but you're not. You don't have much to eat, so George Beeling loses not a lot. Not very of, much to eat. You know, were, it was a terrible thing for a lot of those fellows to go through uh, because they were, you know, they they. Uh, they, they weighed a lot, and they lost a lot. For me, I was smaller, and uh, I, I I can't complain. I couldn't complain. But but you lost 10 pounds, right? 10 or 12 pounds? Well, I did. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Right. I did. All right. But that wasn't, that wasn't much. So tell me about how you eventually come to freedom. The Russians are yeah, coming, amazing, right? That, the that, that's are an coming. amazing story. That's an amazing story. Uh, you know, uh, one day, one uh, one morning we got up and all, all the guards were gone. For some reason, there were no guards. And uh, we went outside and here through the gates come these Russian tanks, okay? Females, uh, there were females on there. But, uh, you know, you see these friendly tanks coming in, you, you got to cry, okay? You got to cry. But uh, they, then then uh, the the Americans came from the, they came from the west and the, the, the uh, uh, Russians came from the east and they met at the Elbe River. Now, I was just, just east of the Elbe River. So I was in, I was in Soviet territory. And uh, that's where they that's where they set the line, and for some reason, and, and this is history, the uh, the Russians did not want to send uh, the American prisoners back over the Elbe. They wanted to send them into Russia and down through the Black Sea and out through the Mediterranean. Now that there's a story behind that, and I I don't know much about it, but there we were. We were ten miles from our own lines and we couldn't get there and uh, uh all of a sudden uh, the, the, the this this half track this uh, this uh, army vehicle came in with uh, about four or five soldiers and they went in to to negotiate with the russians and uh and one another prisoner said to me hey there you know there's americans up there let's go see so i i just went up there to see what they were doing and this vehicle was was standing there, so I got on the fender. I just sat there, and uh, of course, when they when they finished their negotiations and their talks, they just got in the vehicle. They didn't pay any attention to me. They just drove away. They drove away with me. So, no, so you're <laughs> on the fender. You're on the fender of a uh, half track. I'm on the fender of this. Huh? You're on the fender of a half track. That's right. And you just drive and away. I wasn't the only. I wasn't the only one. There were three, four, five, six others that did the same thing. And and uh, our guys, of course, just didn't, pretended they didn't even see us. They just drove away. You know. And I just stayed there. And everything I had, I left. I had. I left all my 
food and souvenirs in there because I had just come to see what was going on. But uh, of course, then they uh, they drove us back over the uh, over the Elbe, and I was in the friendly territory and uh, had my meals and everything. So it was, you know. Once again, good fortune for George Beeling, right? Yeah. 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 It's unbelievable. Well, when you all right, so when you reach uh, when you reach friendly faces, what's that like? You're you're no longer in captivity. You're getting a good <laughs> good meal. What's that like, George? Uh, you you can't imagine. You know you, you can't you, you you can't imagine what that you know. Uh, uh, again, the, you see these soldiers are just milling around, and of course they and they they did a wonderful job. They they got me home within within a week or so. Uh, just slipped me along, and uh, I was on a I was on a, uh, I was on a uh, train in Paris on VE uh, Day, Victory Europe Day, and uh, everybody was celebrating, but they wouldn't let us off the train. So I just sat on that train, and of course, then they put us on a ship, and uh, and uh, we uh, we sailed across to the Atlantic Ocean, and. Uh, uh, when we hit when we hit New York, there was the old Statue of Liberty. You can't imagine what what a sight that was for me. We 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 were right by the Statue of Liberty, and boy, that was something. That was something. So, and on that train when you're in in, in Paris and the VE Day is has come, I imagine there was a a lot of a lot of uh, joy. Oh yes, oh yeah. We, oh yes. Well, you and when you when you got back to to New York City and everybody's cheering and uh, you you get on a train and you head back to Chicago. That's right. What was the reunion like with your family? Uh, well, I, I don't know. They, I just. I, uh, they, um, let's see, uh, Fort Sheridan. I went to Fort Sheridan, which was uh, near Evanston, and uh, uh, when, when they finally uh, released me, I, I took a train into Chicago and I got on a streetcar and I, I just came. I just came. I didn't. Nobody came to get me. I just walked home, uh, and uh, everybody just hugged. You know, just very strange, very strange. But that's quite. A rapid transition from being in captivity just, what, two or three weeks prior? Then you're back home, and all of a sudden you have to adjust to a completely different life. It's a a joyous transition, but my God. (laughs) Well, you know, what it was was uh, they they, they sent us down to uh, Florida uh, for rehabilitation because— they were going to. We were still fighting the Japanese, and uh, of course they asked everybody if if the, if the war ends, do you want to stay in the service? And of course everybody said no. We want to get out, but uh, suddenly the Japanese in in August the Japanese surrendered. So uh, you know then everybody wanted to stay in the service because uh, here you're a, you're a twenty year old kid, you're a first lieutenant, you're a you're a pilot of an airplane. And uh, what the hell are you supposed to do? What did you do? I mean, you know. <laughs> what, what, what did you do, George? 
I went to school. I said, well, I'll, I'll go back to school I, because they had then they had the GI Bill of Rights, and uh, one of the one of the things about that was you got free schooling. So I said, well, I, I don't know what I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll I'll go back to school. So I went to school, and uh, of course, my father gave me a job at the packing company, and and uh, I, I I went to school during the day, and I. Uh, and I uh, worked nights, and uh, I got married and had children, and uh, uh, and the GI Bill of Rights gave me seventy-five dollars a month. So you know, we struggled, but uh, eventually it worked out. Uh, well, when you came well, home, I, you're, you're twenty years old, and <laughs> you can't have a beer, right? A bartender will not give you correct. a beer. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. You could not have a beer. That's, that's right. You could not drink. Yeah, it was quite a thing. Well, that quite was probably pretty aggravating, given what you'd been through. Did you say, hey, look, guys, I was a pilot, and I had to crash land, and I was a captive for four months? Give me a break. Give me a beer. <laughs> they didn't care. Yeah. See, that's what I said. They were just living their regular normal lives. They had no idea. They had no idea what the war was about. I mean, <laughs> Let me bring you forward. What was your experience on Honor Flight Chicago when you took that trip to D.C.? Well, first of all, I was very surprised because, uh, you know, I, they, the, 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 they wanted to put me in a wheelchair, and I, I, I resented that, but they, they were putting all of us in wheelchairs. They were giving us the royal treatment, you know, and uh, they took us on the plane, and they took us to the memorials and showed us Washington and uh, it was really great. I, I, I and, and uh, then of course when we got home, the fire department was there with the with their showers and uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. Did you get to share your experience with other veterans? Uh, not really. Okay. Uh, the only time, the only thing we did was we did we had. Uh, yearly reunions and uh you know we met but i don't i don't think we talked too much we didn't talk too much about you know we just enjoyed each other's company and they always kidded me about how i took the hard way home that's why i named my book the hard way home and i guess after all these years at age 96 you still ask yourself the question how the hell did i make it through all this i do every day (laughs) <laughs> it's amazing. You're a lucky man. It's, it's You're a fortunate it's, man, it's George. It's amazing. Huh? You're a fortunate man, George. Yeah, well, yes. Well, yes. I needn't be reminded of that. I needn't be reminded of that. Well, I want to thank you for your service, for risking your lives to make life better for everybody else. I'm... Well, I, it was a pleasure. I would do I would, I believe it or not, I'd do it again if I had if I could. No, it was a pleasure. I want to tell you this, uh, back in those days there were no Democrats and there were no Republicans. There were just us against Hitler. And uh, we I had no idea what my mates were, you know, what uh, political course they took or and it didn't make any difference to us. I mean 
Hoover out there to, to, to uh, you know, protect the United States against Hitler. So it's not like it is today. Uh, had, what can I say? You had common cause. That's right. George, thanks for your service. Thanks for making us well, safe. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.